Hey everyone, welcome back or welcome to an all new episode of the 20% podcast. This is the show where we bring you tips and tricks from industry professionals across all industries that you could implement in your current job today. I'm your host, Tyler Meckes. This week's guest is Jen Allen. Jen was the number three most listened to episode on the 20% podcast. In this episode, we discussed evangelizing sales evangelism. So during the conversation, we talked about what is evangelism in the first place? How did she create that role at Challenger? finding purpose outside of work, the importance of being passionate about what you're selling, and so much more. Please enjoy this week's episode with Jen Allen. Jen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. So this has been a long time in the making. Um, I was introduced, funny enough, uh, to Jen by somebody who I met when I was at one of my first jobs, I took, uh, you know, right now, Jen is the chief evangelist over at Challenger, which you're probably asking yourself, what the heck is a chief evangelist, which we're absolutely going to get into. Um, but I met Jen through my, uh, see, here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I did all that. <laughs> so I, 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 I actually met Jen through Doug Ferreira, who was one of my challenger coaches. So uh, if Doug is going to be checking this one out, I'm sure he will. Um, thank you so much for, for the intros. Um, but Jen, I'm, I'm really excited to talk. You know, obviously, we're going to talk about how you evangelize evangelism. But before we really jump into that, as I do in every single episode, I really like to dive into the past and in early Jen. So could you just give everybody, even just starting, um, you know, high school Jen, what did she want to do with her life? Obviously, before you went and, and went to Penn State, what were you like and what were your jobs like? What was young Jen like? Yeah, um, young Jen, man. So I, in high school, thought I wanted to be like a singer and actress, right? I was in all the plays. I was a total theater geek. I loved all that stuff. Um, but when I came out of high school, I had this idea that I wanted to go into sports journalism. And I candidly have no idea why, because I'm not a massive sports fan. Like, I don't know why I picked sports as the niche. Um, but I had this idea in my mind went to Penn State, started taking communications courses, and then immediately knew I had made the wrong choice. And so I ended up shifting and I got into this major that everybody teases me about, which is called recreation and park management. Now, recreation and park management could be people that want to be like forest rangers. It could be people that want to run like commercial events and things like that. I think I kind of just got into it because it was easy and I was really enjoying the college life. Um, but I got an internship at the end of my senior year. And the internship was about event planning for final four and bowl game travel. So we would work with universities and we'd help them plan their packages for their alumni organizations. Now I loved the idea of it. I learned a lot about like graphic design when we were like, you know, building the, uh, uh brochures and stuff. And I loved the scenario planning aspect of it. Like how, you know, it could be Maryland maybe going and then they lose and you have to change everything. Like that part was really exciting. The part that was not exciting was standing in a bus parking lot waiting for everybody to get out of like, you know, the sugar bowl while everyone's having fun. So I stopped and was looking for something else to do. I had a college roommate who had started at this company, corporate executive board or CEB. Now CEB doesn't exist anymore. They were acquired by Gartner, but essentially she called me and said, Hey, this is a really smart group of people, not super clear what we're selling, but I know there's a lot of smart people and fun people selling it you should just try an interview and see if you can get an event manager job here. So I interviewed there for an event management, like a meetings management job. And they said, actually, we're going to put you in a, an account management associate job and see how you do there. And so my first job was really supporting an account manager who was calling on C-level marketing leaders at big fortune 500 companies selling an annual subscription. And candidly, I don't know if I would have stayed or not. 
Um, but I had the very best account manager I worked with. She was tough. She was smart. She was sharp. And by looking at her, by watching her, by hearing her engage with these C-level marketing leaders, I just knew I was like, gosh, I want to be like that. And so I attribute a lot of the reason why I started off in sales, honestly, from, from her. That is so amazing. Before we jump into that, it sounds like she was a pretty big mentor in your life. But, but before that, I really just want to ask the question of, you mentioned you went into school from a sports journalism perspective, but then you wanted, then you realized that it wasn't the right fit. What advice do you have for somebody, whether it's a, a college uh, major or it's a job or I don't even, maybe a relationship? Like, how do you know when it wasn't right from your specific uh, position uh, during your, your college years? Great question. I, I candidly, I thought about my future state and I said, do I really want to be one of those people that's shoving a microphone in someone's mouth after they lost? And would I really be able to do that? And would I feel good about what I was doing? And so the answer to me was no. And I think to your point of your question, whether it's a job, whether it's a major, whether it's a relationship, like always looking out and saying a future state, assuming things aren't just going to get better themselves, would I be super happy with how I feel about this situation today? And I knew for me, absolutely not. Wow, that, that's fantastic. I think that's a, a great lesson for anybody really trying to look out. Um, and obviously, it sounds like in the account management, it, it sounds like there's a, a the future state is a, an account management term that uh, I thought was interesting as well. But I think it's really cool how you you, you really just fell into sales. And I know <laughs> with, with my story, I, you know, most people know I by now, I think I study exercise science in college, I got my bachelor's and my master's. And then I logically fell into sales as well. So I think the majority of us actually fall into sales. But the ones who fall into it, seem to actually love it. Um, but so you, so you had that analyst job, you were working with this fantastic account manager, sounded like she was a really great mentor for you that you learned, learned from what's the importance of having a good mentor, having somebody to look up to, to help guide you along the way. So the thing that, I mean, I hate the term, like what keeps you up at night, but if I had to say like one of the things that keeps me up at night, it is the number of people who start off in a sales profession who don't have a great coach, a manager or mentor who end up thinking they're just bad salespeople when in reality, they're just getting bad coaches. Like that is the thing that I worry about the most because I think it is absolutely essential when you're learning sales because of the up and down nature of it. If you're not having someone who's coaching you through that, who's helping you realize it's not you, you're not bad, but detaching like Josh Brown, I love, uh, I'm a big fan of Josh Brown. He talks about like detaching from the outcome. If you're not learning that earlier in your career, I do understand why there's such a high level of attrition in sales, because I think it's just so easy for us to say, sales is all about me, what I say, what I do. And when I fail, it's because I'm a failure. And so I think having someone who really helps you see through that early, early on in your career helps you navigate those highs and lows. Yeah. And that's, I think everybody has faced that, that same situation. I know mental health in sales is a, is a really big topic right now. And it's something that I've really focused on as well, because, you know, you know, even myself in the past have had where you're just, you just want to succeed so bad, or even Ian Koniak is a really good story yeah. where um, he had a, he almost lost his relationship due to, you know, wanting to, to succeed so bad and going down a path, which I highly recommend checking out that podcast as well. If you, if you haven't um, and anybody out there listening, um, but Ultimately, I know how important it is to detach from what you're doing because there's a lot of outcomes that are not your, like as long as you have the correct output, and this is something that Ian taught me as a result of this, if as long as you have the outputs, your outcomes are going to come. But how do you detach yourself from your quota, from your self-worth? Because it's a very tough thing to do. Yeah, so for a while, um, 
I was single and I think I associated a lot of my self-worth with, with my performance at work. And, um, that was a really, really difficult time because there were, it's like a period of time where I'd have an amazing year and then a bad year, an amazing year, a bad year. And so it was like, even on the amazing years, I couldn't feel great about myself. Cause I was like, if history repeats itself, I know a bad year is, is coming to follow. Right. Um, so for me, one of the things that was really, really helpful was finding things outside of work that I felt gave me a challenge and gave me a purpose so that I wasn't just viewing my, like my self-worth as a relation of, you know, how, how good or bad I was performing against goal. So like stuff is simple. I was talking to a college class, um, at UTD yesterday about this, like stuff as simple as getting a dog, like starting to go biking, learning, skiing, things like that, things that are going to be difficult that aren't just going to come naturally to you. I think do two things. One, they distract you from when you are having low periods, but two, they build confidence because you know, Hey, if I've learned to do this thing that was completely foreign to me or difficult to me, like, why can't I translate that to sales? And I think confidence in sales is just so important. And it's definitely something when we put too much focus on our work, um, it's easy to knock your confidence off, off a cliff. You're exactly right. And it sounds like you were trying to find your why essentially. And, and that's something yeah. that's really, you know, Simon Sinek, if you haven't watched, um, he has a, a great TED talk, uh, a great book. I usually have it next to me. Um, but start with why you need to know exactly why you're doing something so that even if you have a tough time or have, don't hit your quota, or how am I going to get out of this ditch? Whatever the situation is, overcoming that obstacle, you know exactly why you're doing it. Um, so I couldn't believe more. And I, I really like the point of, of going out and trying to do something different because you're going to learn something that's going to be beneficial in your life. And it's so funny when you start doing things, you see like how it relates to sales. So, oh my so tell me, do you have any good stories of uh, one of those situations where you taught yourself how to ski or like anything that's not related to sales that you learned some type of sales lesson in? Yeah, no, it's a great question actually, because of COVID, um, so I had skied maybe a few times when I was a kid, right? And then um, in, gosh, maybe it was early last year, normally every year we do a girl's trip with my friends. And we said, we can't really go anywhere that's indoors. So what can we do outdoors? And we said, well, let's go to a ski resort. We'll see if we can like figure it out. And so I remember um, when we were booking the trip, everyone was like, we're going to do two days of skiing. And I said, no, absolutely not. I'm doing one. I don't even think I'm going to be good. I'm not going to like it. I'll do one just to be a good partner on this trip, but that's it. And so I signed up for two because they peer pressured me and I'm a sucker for peer pressure. Um, the first day I remember getting on, you know, that, I don't know if you ski, do you ski? I don't. Okay. But you still probably know, right. They have like those little conveyor belts, right. And you get on it, which is candidly like the hardest part of learning how to ski. I don't know why they make you use those. I remember getting on the can conveyor belt. I was terrified. And I just kept telling myself, you're not going to be able to get off this hill. And there's all these children on this hill and you look like a moron, right? Like, and I'm, I'm negative self-talk being like, you can't do this. You can't do this. I had a phenomenal ski instructor and that ski instructor figured out how to communicate with me in a way where I wasn't so like blinded by fear and failure. And what I was able to do is like much faster than I thought I could. I got off that hill. I got onto the green. Then by the end of the day, we were on a blue and to great skiers. It's like, okay, Jen, you're on a blue hill. You're not like, you're not an Olympic skier. But I think for me, it was like being able to find many successes and then talk myself up and up and up. And I think in sales, sometimes it's really difficult because we look at the whole job and it's like, 
you know, I'm bad at negotiating. I'm bad at discovery. I'm bad at this. Instead of saying like, what is my thing? I feel like I'm mastering right now. And how do I build on that skill? So that if I do more of that, then I can take off the, on the next skill without feeling like I'm a complete failure. And so what I loved about the parallel, it was like, yeah, I was going from like the baby hill to blue or to green and then green to blue. But every time I moved up, I felt more empowered to try something different. So by the time, like, you know, three months down the road, we went to Jackson hole. I was doing like double blues, which were scary and terrifying, but I felt confident that I could do it. And I think in sales, we need to recognize we're not going to be great at every skill. I still don't think I'm great at every skill in sales, but if I can really, really crush the things that I feel strong about, the other stuff is just going to come easier. That is a phenomenal answer. <laughs> I, I did not, not expect that, but I think it's, it's a really great point to take away from there is making sure like, yeah, maybe your quota is, I, I don't know, a million dollars, but if you think, look at it that way, it's, that's a really tough thing to think about, but let's, yeah. let's, let's get to the first hundred thousand first. Let's get to this. So setting those goals. And I know that, um, Olympic gold medalist, I, I believe, or, or she's a, she's been to Olympics. Shantae Lowe has the same exact methodology around that of let's set those mini goals of like, I, I think I asked her, um, for example, how do you keep your confidence for the next four years between events? So, well, I'm still doing all these mini events in between. I need to go run this event. I need to go do this. So I need to prepare in those mini segments. So it's just another parallel of how do we set these mini goals to, to ultimately get to that, you know, that top of the mountain. You don't, you don't get to Mount Everest by just jumping, right? No. Yeah. You, and you never start by saying there's Mount Everest. I'm going to climb up it. Right. That would be insane, but I want to check that episode out. I didn't know you did that. Cool. Yeah. Well, no. So that was, that was, I'm going to give a plug to uh, the talent champions council. It's actually a private membership group. Um, super cheap. So, uh, it's like 15 bucks a month where uh, my good friend, Scott McGregor comes in and he brings in these world-class people to do mini masterclasses for the group. Wow. So they, they've had the, he, he's had the CEO of 1-800-GOT-JUNK, which I've been able to ask questions to. Um, the founder of Intel Capital, who was really close with, um, with the likes of, um, you know, I, Andy Grave, I think is, is that the guy who, the Intel guy? Um, so, sorry if I completely botched that one, but he knew Steve <laughs> Jobs, Bill Gates, like all of these people, like cool. really giving access to these great people. So if you're looking for that, Talent Champions Council, um, Scott, if you're listening to this, uh, appreciate everything, man. So, okay, so moving forward, Jen, so let's look at your career like that mountain that we were talking about. Obviously, you're, you're right now, we're going to say the chief evangelist job is the top you had to take those steps across your career in order to get to where you are today. So after you're an account manager, you had a number of other positions at CEB and also challenger through, throughout time. Could you just walk us through uh, the next steps of that journey up until where you finally, right before you started getting into the, the evangelist side of things? Yeah. So there's some things, there's some job changes that were like not a choice. And then there's somewhere that were voluntary, right? So when I was first an account manager, it was a single program. I was just responsible for renewing that business. Then we made an org change and said, rather than have all these individual account managers, you're going to have a bag of, of programs that you're selling. So if you have one company that's a marketing member, you're trying to get them to buy sales and then communication. So that was my first introduction to cross-selling. Um, and I found myself really enjoying those meetings. So it wasn't to say I didn't enjoy the like renewal meetings, but it was, there was like a, a thrill and a challenge to it that I enjoyed. Um, from there, then I started having these, I would look at my day. I remember I was sitting in a meeting in, in the suburbs of Chicago with a guy and I was sitting there thinking about, I've got this account day planned out and he's an existing customer. My next two meetings are cross-sell opportunities. And then I have an existing customer meeting and it, I don't know what it was, but I'm sitting there 
And it struck me, I was like, I'm kind of dreading this meeting and my end of day meeting, and I'm really looking forward to the middle. And so I, it was just this really easy recognition of if, if I'm dreading this and I'm enjoying that, why don't I just make that my full-time job? And so at that point, I moved into a pure hunter role where I was selling the memberships instead. That was my first experience having like starting the year at zero. And it was terrifying. Like I felt just like with the skiing thing, I felt a complete fear of failure because I thought with account management, somebody's going to renew. Like, you're, you know, you're not going to end the year at zero right. versus right. this. I was like, what if nobody buys? And it was a challenge, which I think is why I liked it. Um, but then as I started doing it more, it built my confidence. But in my mind, it was like, okay, this is a very transactional role, right? I'm just selling one, you know, $50,000 subscription product. And I wanted to get bigger and say, how can I further challenge myself but staying in the sales hunter role? That's when I moved over to the challenger business, which was still a part of um, CEB at the time. And that was probably the biggest challenge but also the, the proudest moment, because I felt like when I looked at the other members of the sales team, they were here and I was here, right? And I just said, man, there's a huge gap. These people are used to selling these multi-million dollar deals. I'm over here selling like $50,000 price points. And I think that awareness of my gap really put me in a place where I said, I need to learn, absorb, like soak up as much as possible. And it was one of the, the most rewarding, like rich learning experiences I probably ever had, because I just felt there was such a Delta in, in my capability. And so when I started selling that, um, that was just like a completely different experience, right? Like a transactional product, you might argue like $50,000 isn't a transactional product, but I think it's more like it was a one decision maker type thing. Here, I was trying to convince, um, you know, entire leadership teams of people to shift their sales methodology, which, you know, nobody's lights stay on because of their sales methodology. It's not a product that like you make or break without. And so having to figure out ways to show people there was urgency to do that was, was super, super fascinating to me. So that got me up until January when I took the evangelist role. Wow. So there's so much to even dive into there. So obviously <laughs> you had some, uh, some of the account management roles, you had some of the account executive roles. You were able, as a result of that, able to round out your career experience really well. Why is it so important to, to be conscious of where your skill sets are? And why is it important to round out that experience as well? I think if nothing else, it's not the smartest answer, but it's just boredom, right? For me, I think having passion for what you're doing, especially in sales, what you're selling, how you're selling it, who you're selling it to, really is, is such a, an indicator of performance. If I, I felt myself towards the tail end of that account management role, just kind of going through the motions. And I knew that my customers probably felt it too, right? So for me, it was just, I don't want to ever stay stagnant. I don't want to ever get dull. I don't want to ever start to assume like I can master this job. I think further, like continuing to challenge yourself just opens up new ways that you can, you know, be, be confident about what you have to offer. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've heard from somebody, I, I can't remember who the podcast guest was, but sales is literally the transfer of enthusiasm. I think it was John Barrows. Um, but so if you're not actually enthusiastic about what you're doing, like, yeah, you could do okay, but why not get into something that you are actually really passionate about? And before we talk about the passion, because I know you're very excited about your role now being an evangelist, but before that, I know we talked a lot about failure and you mentioned that a couple of times of, you know, being nervous of failing, but really reflecting back and it doesn't need to be any specific failure, just failure in general. Why is it important for people to fail? Oh my gosh. Like you learn so much from failure. And I know that sounds like a cheesy answer, but one of the things I learned when I was talking about having those years, right. Have a great year and a bad year and a great year and bad year. One of the things I observed about myself, and I, I share this with people all the time, because I think it's probably common is when I would have a great year, 
I would just assume that everything that worked that year would work the following year. And so I would say stagnant, right? And I would just keep placing bets saying, well, it worked last year, it's going to work again. When you have a year of failing, I think what it forces us to do is to say something's broken and I've got to reassemble all the pieces, right? And I'm not saying like unwind everything that you do, but like the beauty of sales is when you're not doing the right things, you get a bad number. And so what I love about it and my goal now is to say, no matter how I did last year, every single year in January, my goal is to have at least one massive revelation about how my customers buy and how I sell in response. If I cannot think of one, I go to people on the team and I say, what was your revelation? Like, is, is there a revelation that you had? So I can try to absorb someone else's learning. But I think that's so incredibly important because failure teaches us not to stay, you know, standing still. Yeah, that's incredible. And what's the importance of self-reflection as well? Obviously, whether it's a failure or looking at your own sales methodologies, why should people, even if you're having the best year of your life, why do you need to reflect on that as well? Yeah, I mean, I think the beauty of sales is it keeps you humble, right? There, there's no way, I, it, I always cringe when I hear people refer to themselves as like a sales expert because sales is changing and moving so fast. I don't think any of us can claim to be an expert in something that is just like that rapidly changing. Um, but I do think that having those moments of reflection, one, makes us better, but two, also gives us empathy for other people who are working with us. So like, you know, there were people I remember I talked to when I was having an off year who were then open with me about, hey, this is the reflection I had last year. And it one, it brought me closer, but two, it also allowed me to see it's not just me. It's not that I'm like mentally not cut out for sales. Like everybody kind of goes through this. And I think the deeper the relationships you can form with people, especially people you work with, the better, because then you just foster trust, you foster openness, and, and then you can learn benefit from everybody's learning. I mean, not everybody, but everybody who's open with you, they're learning. Right. And it sounds like you're trying to develop a community, right? Or having a group of people around you, a support system, I guess, whether it's, uh, you know, if it's an, another employee who may be going through something di- the same or, you know, in a, in a remote world, it seems like a lot more of us are getting into these different communities so that you could build relationships, whether it's pavilion or, or whatever, whatever yeah. one, you know, you, you'd like um, the importance of community as well. And I know that community is something, it seems to be a part of the evangelist role as well, diving into this as well, I guess let, let's ask you, what does it even mean to be an evangelist? <laughs> I heard some great, great remarks when I posted that job update. So um, I, the example I, or the, the definition I got came from, I think, I hope I don't butcher his name, Dan Steinman from Gainsight. He was sort of the original evangelist for customer success. I was reading an interview and listening to a podcast he did. And he talked about evangelism as if you think about marketing is um, promoting your solutions for your company evangelism is promoting the unique perspective your company offers on the problem you solve, right? So I'm not out there saying, hey, this is why Challenger has the best training in the world. I'm out there teaching people, here are things that we are assuming are driving success or failure in sales. And here are things we've learned that actually conflict with that. And the thing that was so exciting to me is I didn't even know it existed. Like I thought of evangelism as, you know, something that's connected with churches. And then when I read that podcast, it like, it really just, or listen to that podcast, it clicked for me. Cause I said, that's the stuff I get excited about. It's the early stage stuff. Like once you've already convinced someone on the problem and then you're selling them the solution. Yeah. There's thrill in winning it, but I'm far more passionate about getting someone to change their perspective about how they solve the problem. And it just seemed like the perfect fit. That's, that's, a, that's phenomenal. And you, and you mentioned before that, like, you didn't even know that it was a thing. 
And at Challenger, it wasn't even a thing before you started. So you actually sent me a couple months ago your playbook of how <laughs> you you essentially got this role off the ground and started. So obviously, people get really excited about what Jen just mentioned of what what an evangelist is, why it's important. Next, the next step in the playbook is getting a, an evangelist at your company. So Jen, can you walk everybody through what that process looked like? Obviously, you were very successful. I believe it was account director or a, a pretty high up on the chain in the uh, in the sales world, and then you started this position. What did that journey look like? Yeah, so it actually started out of necessity. So last year, in the beginning of the year, our team split into hunters and farmers, and then key accounts and major accounts. So I was a hunter in our large enterprise space. We called it key. And very quickly in January, I realized the amount of leads I was getting out of marketing was never going to be enough inbound to get me to where I wanted to be. And so I started kind of like becoming more active on LinkedIn and posting and then joining podcasts and stuff like that. And then as I was doing it, it wasn't with the intention to sell or commercialize Challenger. I was just passionately speaking about the things that I had learned as a result of going through Challenger and the mistakes I had made and how it taught me to behave differently. And then all of a sudden I would start getting these inbounds from very senior, senior executives on LinkedIn. And I would say, it's really curious. Like, why wouldn't they just go to our website and fill out a form? And actually there was one that came in from a gentleman I used to work with years ago when I was an account manager. And I asked him that, I said, why didn't you just go fill out the form? And he said, because I have no idea who's going to be on the other end of that form. I have no idea if it's going to be some super aggressive rep. I know you because I know your perspective and I see that it aligns with the problems that I face. I see that you get me, even though you don't even know I'm looking at you. And so that became really exciting to me because I said, gosh, if I can actually impact for our company, how many senior executives consider challenger, forget about whether they buy it or not, but like how many people even just like add it to the consideration set that would be so rewarding above and beyond any individual goal that I could carry. And so by virtue of doing it, what it allowed me to do is to sit, go back to our CEO and I think it was like October, November and say, look, I know this job title sounds crazy. I know we don't have this today. I know you're probably like, how is this different from marketing? But by doing this stuff off the side of my desk while I'm carrying a bag, here are the deals I was able to influence or originate. Now imagine if I could do this as like 75% of my job. And so I, I just, I used resources online. I looked at um, Guy Kawasaki had a description of um, evangelism. I look at Dan Steinman's description and I just sort of pieced together and said, look, in year one, I'm not these dudes. I'm not going to have people knocking down my door being like, will you present at my sales kickoff? That's going to take some time. So I thought about how can I evangelize Challenger inside of Challenger? How can I provide lift on learning and development? And so what I did is instead of asking the CEO to make this big leap and investment into something that like, you know, maybe would work out, maybe wouldn't. I said, why don't we take a kind of staged approach? I'll keep a bag next year, but instead of, you know, 75% of time selling and 25% of time evangelizing, let's flip that. And then we'll see if it works, but let's align on like what measures you want me to affect. So we ended up with things like leads with, you know, affinity for the company with, um, you know, renewal rate of our existing clients by leaning in there. And so by structuring that, and, I'm, and by the way, I'm happy to share with any listeners, if, if you're curious about this job, I can do the same thing I did with Tyler and share it. Yes, go um, connect. Go connect with Jen Allen. <laughs> Jen Allen at Challenger. And we'll link. We'll link Give her link in the show notes as well. Yes, thank you. But I did that, and candidly, you know, I, I could I could have seen a lot of CEOs just saying no, 
Um, but I'm, I'm really fortunate to work for a company that has a really innovative, open-minded leadership team. And she said, what's the worst can happen? Let's do it for a year and see what happens. So it, it, it was like part of what I, what I was proud of myself for is I'd never before asked for a job that didn't exist. My only advice, if I could go back to past self would be, don't feel so much like you have to do the job before you're paid for it. Like do it to make sure you like it, have some performance measures, but I really should have asked for that job back in July, not in November. And I think that's something, especially for us women in sales that we tend to feel like we need to prove ourselves before we ask for something. That's the only thing I'd probably change about it. Wow. That, that is fantastic advice, Jen. That that's so incredible. And, and really what it seems like is that you had to take that structure to that, that staged approach and you ultimately weren't afraid to, to go out and, and ask for those things based upon things that you liked. Now, um, obviously it sounds like, you know, one of the other points that you mentioned that I think is interesting is that you said that, you know, do the job that you're not necessarily getting paid for because you don't know how that's going to happen. I am a true, true believer. Um, anybody who follows me on LinkedIn understands is that sales reps need to be mini marketers, right? What, what's the importance of, you know, say somebody wants to be an evangelist at some point, what are some good steps where they could say, where they could start, even if they're in an individual contributor role right now? Love this question. Um, and I will tell you not to like totally fangirl over Josh Braun, but I really, I attribute a lot of this stuff to, to my conversation with him. I had been posting um, early last year when I first started getting more active on writing content on LinkedIn, I was posting a ton of stuff that was safe content. So what I mean is I was posting lots of data and charts and stuff that was getting a lot of likes and getting a lot of traction. But in retrospect, what Josh helped me realize is I was posting that stuff because it was safe. No one's going to fight me. No trolls are going to fight me on the internet over a bar graph, right? If there's re like reputable data behind it. Right. And he reached out to me on LinkedIn and said, Jen, um, I I've been loving your stuff. Can we talk? And when we started talking, he said, you know, I, I don't want this to come across as critical because I do love what you post. But the thing I notice is I have no idea who you are. I know the company you represent. I don't know who you are. And I said, right, I think I do that because it's safe. And he said, I would challenge you to try to write something that you failed on and show your list or show your audience what you learned out of it. Just try it. Right. And I was like, gosh, that sounds awful and scary. And I don't want to do it because what if my customer sees it and they think I'm terrible at discovery or whatever the case may be, but he said, do it, do it. Right. And I'm like, well, this dude has like 5,000 likes on everything he posts. He clearly knows what he's talking about. So I try it. And two things happened. One, I got so much more actual engagement, not just like thumbs up, cool graph, but like people leaning in and being like, this is really, really like relatable. And then two, it boosted my confidence because I was able to say, look, my perspective has meaning, right? And I think one of the things I admire about you, about other great people that I follow is this, like this idea that we're not perfect. Like I said before, I hate sales experts. I hate people that like mansplain sales to us. I, what I really am, am, I learn by and what I get excited about is people who are open about weaknesses, failures, mistakes, and what they've learned out of it, because we all make failures, mistakes, have weaknesses. And I think it's just so very relatable. So long-winded answer, but I would say to anybody who's like starting to think about personal branding, whether you want to be an evangelist or not, what I would say is put content out there that allows someone to understand who you are and what you stand for, right? Like every great brand stands for something. We all know what Apple stands for, what Nike stands for. Do your customers, do your prospects, do your friends, do your family, do they know what you stand for as it relates to your job? If they don't, 
you know, you're not going to get a lot of people coming to you and saying, Hey, I want to pick your brain. If you do, you're, you might alienate some people, but that's okay. Cause those are people that you don't want to talk to anyway. So I would say, be vulnerable, post something that you've messed up about. For me, it was a huge confidence boost to do more of it. That's so interesting. And you think that it, you would think that it would be bringing your confidence down as a result of, of having that, uh, I don't even say self-deprecation, but just some of those things that you think you'd be embarrassed about. A um, couple of points that I want to jump in, in, into there as well. I'm a true advocate of connections over impressions. And I tell people that all the time. Like if you're going to post something, especially somebody who will come to me, for example, or say, hey, I see you're posting on LinkedIn a lot, but I'm nervous. How do I do it? Post something because if you affect one person, that's a win. I would rather get one, le- one message than any uh, thousands of likes. So big lesson there in that. And also people like Morgan J. Ingram, who started the, um, he started his uh, SDR Chronicles by literally just talking about what he did that day in the daily life of an SDR. And now obviously you know, he has over a hundred thousand uh, followers on LinkedIn, um, an even better person. Um, so shout out to Morgan if you're, if you're checking this one out. But uh, what it comes down to is, is you need to put yourself out there and, and it's scary, but to your point, Jen, I mean, it's, it's so important. For those who are still looking to try to figure out, okay, this personal brand seems like something I, I want to do, but I don't even know what my voice is. How do you, and, and I know you mentioned before, um, especially uh, in the women in sales move, and I know you mentioned that there's some obstacles that you, you'd have to have to face there. Um, you know, with, with folks in, in those types of situations who they may be nervous or scared about something, how do you unpack what you're about, what your personal brand is? Is, is it just inner, inner work and self-reflection? Yeah. I mean, for me, there was always this, this mantra I had in my mind, which is when I leave a room, leave a meeting, leave a comment, leave a post, what would be the adjectives? Like I would want someone to associate with me. Right. So for some people, maybe it's like really intelligent or really funny or, you know, whatever the case, like, what is your personal brand? How do you want to leave an impression when you're not there? What do you, if if someone was going to say like, use four words to describe Tyler, what would they be? And I think for me, that really helped give me structure because what I didn't want to do is just like barf over, you know, LinkedIn and just be like, here's my random thought of the day. I wanted to have some sort of organizing theme. And for me, for a very long time, um, I felt like I had to play the role of a professional salesperson. And what I mean by that is like, had to use big words, had to not be, you know, had to be conservative, not show my humor, like be extremely professional, but candidly, that's not who I am, right? Like I'm someone that is probably honestly more introverted than extroverted, but I enjoy not being super, super serious or trying to impress everybody with my vocabulary. And once I realized that, and once I said, you know, my friends look at me in this, this way, my coworkers look at me in this way. And my customers look at me in this way. I was like, I'm being completely inauthentic to one of these groups. And it was like my friends and coworkers. And so what I start, what I, my advice would be, I guess, is to start thinking about like, what are the things your friends, your family, your loved ones value about you? And how do you find ways to actually express that in a professional setting? If you're really funny, be funny. The world needs more of it. If you are really, really smart and can use big words, that's cool too. But like own it and own who you are. Otherwise you just end up sounding like everybody else who posts. And if you're not funny, don't try to be funny. (laughs) What are you saying? (laughs) It's going to flop because I I am, I'm definitely one of those people that I'm just much better off the fly of saying things versus like actually trying to be funny. So, um, you know, my wife will even say, don't try to be funny. Like (laughs) don't don't do it. So, um, so that, so that was that, but now I want to want to talk about challenger a little bit. So, you know, 
ultimately at first, and I'll tell you what my story was going into challenger before we started, before I started doing challenger, um, at my previous job, my sales director said, Hey, we're going to be doing this training. Why don't you read this book? Cause I, I asked like, what could I be doing? Right. I was brand new to sales I said, read this book and let me know what your thoughts are. And when I read through it, I'm like, I am the friend. I try to be, I, I am a relationship salesperson <laughs> through and through. I don't like all of the other personas. Like I build relationships with people. That's what I want to do. What are some of the biggest misconceptions about Challenger and, and how do you, how could you combat those essentially? Oh my gosh, there are so many and we don't have enough time to get through them all. I think one of the biggest ones candidly, oh shoot, sorry. We might want to edit that one out. No problem. <laughs> Sorry. Can you still hear it? Yeah, I can hear it. This is authentic, Jen. I'm not cutting this out, by <laughs> the way. <laughs> Everybody who doesn't call it me knows this happens. Okay, now they're done. Um, this is who you are, by the way. This is a great lesson. Of, if your dogs are barking in the background, who cares? Right? It doesn't matter. Be <laughs> yourself. I know. I was telling Tyler right before we got on, our, my daughter came in with a bloody mouth because one of her teeth fell out while I was on a conference call. I was like, so we have that. Um, so big misconceptions about challenger, the biggest one comes, I think from people who read the cover of the book and say, I hate it. I hate that word challenger. That and that was me. Yes. And I don't blame them. Right. Like, you know, with most things, I think the company was intentionally provocative with picking a name, the other alternative name, a lot, a lot of people know this was going to be the new relationship builder. What would that have done, right? You would have been like, all right, I'm in a relationship, but do I need to be the new version? I don't know. So I think a lot of the misconceptions come from this idea that challengers are out there being like super aggressive and condescending and in your face. And that could not be farther from the truth. Like when I think about a challenger, I think about someone who's so intellectually curious, like they're just trying to explore how does this work and how does this lead to that? And they do it not just in sales, but they do it in all aspects of their life. And the great thing about them is because of their desire just to understand how things work, they're unafraid to ask those customers those hard questions, even though it might be uncomfortable, because their goal is to help the customer make the thing work better, right? I always describe myself as a reformed relationship builder because relationship building sales styles worked so good for so long. Like my first I don't know, five years of selling, I, I was like pretty decent at relationship building and it worked. Then the economic crisis happened and I was like, okay, where are all my friends? Like they're gone. They got let go. Their budgets are reduced. And it was a really rude awakening for me. So when I learned about challenger and to this day, I still feel this way. It's not like I was a born challenger or I even was like a born salesperson but Challenger gave me a mindset to be very intentional about, to go into a customer conversation and say like, I know I got to build the pain of same around their problem before I ever introduce the upside of our solution. I know I've got to be really um, careful about who I deliver that story to and how I tell it. And so even in calls today, like it would be so easy for me to slip back into relationship building, but this just gave me a framework to think through. And, and candidly, I love calling it a mindset because that's what I think it is like a very intentional mindset to say, I know I got to accomplish these jobs when I go in and have a customer conversation, even though it didn't come naturally to me. That's phenomenal. And it's so funny too. Like one, like you mentioned the, the biggest misconceptions, right? Like a challenger, one of the biggest takeaways that I had from the challenger training is that being a challenger does not mean that you need, need to be combative. You don't need to challenge that person, but rather it's just changing. It's just challenging somebody's thoughts or current assumptions on something and making them think, right? Yes. 
that I love the way you put that, right? It is like, we all make decisions off of belief systems, right? And sometimes those belief systems are made off of old information or, you know, beliefs that we just formed without any sort of data. And my goal isn't to go in and say to someone like, you are so stupid because you have this belief system. My goal is to go in and show someone evidence that the world has changed. The environment around us has changed. And therefore that belief system is no longer up to date with what, you know, where we're living in right now. Like that's not combative. Like my, my goal, the analogy I use sometimes is like, you know, if I had spinach in my teeth and my friend just let me sit through dinner with it, I would be so angry with her at the end. But maybe if she said, well, I didn't tell you because I thought it would be uncomfortable. It's like, she's, she's doing it because she cares about my feelings, but she's actually making me look bad. I think of challengers, the same thing. Sometimes you got to have hard conversations, expose risk, expose cost, but you're not doing it. So you're right. And they're wrong. You're doing it for the betterment of their business. That, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more than that. I, what I'm thinking during this as well is like, you know, if you, yeah, this, that's a terrible example. I'm not even going to go there. But, <laughs> no, now I'm curious. I'm thinking of like a, like a, you know, if you're operating with inaccurate information, like that's not a good situation. Like if you, if you had a, a software update and you didn't do the update, you're not operating with the latest and greatest of what's going on. And that's what the importance of bringing that information to somebody or that, that different perspective so that you are working in an up-to-date world, I guess. So I, I was able to pull that one yeah, back. No, you totally pulled that. And that's, and honestly, that's what was reflected in our customer data too, right? Like when customers said, what makes for a great sales experience? It was someone who came in and taught me something new. Like if I'm just head nodding, like, yes, you've got everything right. And yes, we'll be the best at performing on that. What am I doing? I'm commoditizing myself along with the other two reps who are doing the same thing. I, and I've heard this directly from customers' mouths a lot. Like customers like when we say no. Customers like when we say I have a different perspective because it shows you're actually like applying critical thinking, right? It's not about being the most likable or the easiest accessible. It is about really going out there and thinking, what if I were in this customer's shoes? What would I want to know? What would I be like? Oh shoot, I didn't, I didn't, I missed this, right? Because candidly, most customers just don't have the time or capacity to, to think about these things as much as they'd like. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a hundred percent. That's, that's, that's phenomenal, Jen. That is that incredible. And the, the other thought, the other interesting takeaway that I had as a result of doing challenger training is like, you think about the rational drowning and the, like the tension meter. I noticed when outside of training, like when I'm in a, a, a neg- another situation of just uh, having a conversation, because that's really what sales are, right? You could tell if there's not enough tension that something needs to be had, or if there's too much tension in a situation, you need to bring it back down into a, a, the proper zone. So, uh, you know, <laughs> so funny, like literally the days after I was doing training, <laughs> I think of like, okay, where's this tension now? This is a little high. We need to back this down a little <laughs> bit. So like, yes. so that, was, that was another cool, cool takeaway from the training. So Jen, that, that's incredible. I know we're running up on time. So I want to ask a couple questions, a couple sure. rapid fire questions um, that I, I, I like to ask. So First and foremost, you're a parent. What is your best piece of parenting advice? Yeah. So side note, I am a step, we'll call me a stepmom because my boyfriend has four children. Um, I think my, so, and this happened later in life. So I'm 40 and my first exposure to having these kids was uh, 39. And so I think my best parenting advice is when your kid comes in and has something to show you or something to tell you, it doesn't matter what you're doing, stop, pay attention, because those I think are just, and as cheesy as this sounds, like those are just the universe's ways of saying, stop working for a second. Like let those distractions happen, lean into them and make sure that you're prioritizing your kids over your, your work. 
that is that's a phenomenal piece of advice. I want to <laughs> I want to dive back now. You you mentioned that you had you were so gung ho about uh, being an actress and and being on stage and being and I think you mentioned theater dork. Um, what are you doing? What about your love for theater or what you were doing then is relatable to your current sales job now? So part of my evangelist job is to do keynotes and things for companies who are either on the challenger journey or considering it and want to sort of generate awareness of it. And those are opportunities where I, I absolutely feel that that skill coming back where you're public speaking, you're putting yourself out there. It, it's a little bit different because I'm not acting anymore, but I love the sense that you're putting yourself up on a, a very public platform. That part's fun. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's so funny. I know, um, I don't know if you father, 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 follow <laughs> Heather Monahan. She was a, an executive in, um, in the radio advertising space. And now she went and is a public speaker now. So she may be a good one to, to follow I because follow her. Uh, I don't think so I that do. Was, so that was good. So, all right. Final question. I like to ask yeah. every single guest on the podcast. If you were teaching a college one one class based upon all of your previous life and work experience, what would you teach and why? Oh my goodness. It certainly would not be dog training as evidenced by my barking dogs. Um, what would it be? I, I mean, I don't know that this is a great college course, but I'm going to say, cause I think it's such an important life skill is just being your authentic self. Like I, I can't think of an aspect of your life that finding your authentic self and owning your authentic self isn't important, but I think especially so in sales, like I talked about before, just feeling like I had to play a role and, you know, let's say I was an engineer, I could, I could see that happening as well, but giving and building confidence and giving people the tools to know, how do you feel confident showing up with who you are instead of who you think you need to be? I, I candidly, I wish I had that in high school. Cause I think I would have made a lot more money in sales to this point. Jen, this has been fantastic. Where could people- Wait, wait, wait. Go- what's your answer? I want to know your answer to that question. Oh God. I, ah! <laughs> nobody has ever asked me that question. So that that's, so thank you for that first and foremost. Sure. Um, if, if I was teaching it, I think it would just be, I think it would be self-aware, self-awareness or, or knowing your why 101. And I think that that drives you, you know, if you're self-aware and you know why you need to do the things that you're doing, like, for example, why do I make phone? Why do I, why am I in sales? I want to make a great life for my family. So if I have a bad day in sales, I could always reflect back on, this is my family. This is why I'm doing it. Right. Knowing your why and knowing why you're doing it will get you through any type of situation in life. So that's why that's, that is exactly why I would choose that class not to be cheesy with that as well. No, that's a great one. I like what you said around knowing your why, when things get hard, if you remember you're doing it in your case, if you're doing it for your family to be able to provide, right. That's so much more important than a bad sales call or, you know, bad lead, whatever the case and may the other be. One I, the other one I would teach as well is, is uh, skills transfer 101. And the, the reason being is I studied exercise physiology in college, but there are so many reasons why your skills transfer of like, you know, one of my, one of my coaches taught me at one point of what was I doing in like, I was in, I was in exercise physiology and now I'm in sales. He said, this, that's a perfect explanation before you were working on, on how to optimize the interconnections of a, of a connected system. But now you're doing that in a different role in businesses. Now Ooh, I love that. So, so my thing is like, no matter what you're doing in life, no matter, even if you hate your job, there's going to be something that you could learn from that job and that you could take moving forward. So no matter what, if you know your why, know you're pushing through it, and then knowing that whatever you're learning right now could be used tomorrow, the sky's the limit on that. That's so good. That's awesome. so good. So Jen, right, I would take both of those classes. Thanks, Tyler. Very good. Where could people <laughs> learn more about you and everything you have going on? 
Yeah. Um, my LinkedIn is the best. So I try to post pretty consistently and I'm not an everyday poster, um, but check out my LinkedIn. And then if you are curious about the challenger sale, we do a um, podcast called winning the challenger sale access anywhere you get podcasts. Um, and you'll hear all the mistakes I made and what I learned from them when you listen into those. Awesome. Jen, I'm going to go check that is that check that out as well. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tyler.